2: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Take
3: me
2: to the game. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Kelly Richardson Lawson. I'm a mother, a wife, and an entrepreneur. I started the Sunrise Project after our beautiful teenage son attempted to take his own life. Truth is, my husband and I felt despair, isolation, and immeasurable pain. I knew in my heart we needed a place for Black parents to share their struggles, find mutual support, and help our beloved children who struggle with mental wellness, addiction, or both. Each weekly podcast features an expert who shares their knowledge and takes questions from parents and children.
3: Take me to the king I don't have much to breathe. The
2: Sunrise Project allows Black families, like ours, to find comfort in knowing that we are not alone. While the purpose of the Sunrise Project is to share, support, and uplift, this conversation is not a substitute for medical advice. Finding the right health care professional for your family's specific needs is crucial. If you do not feel seen or heard, you should speak to more than one professional to find the right fit. Good morning and welcome again to our weekly Sunrise Project Call, where we're so happy that you're here with us this morning and we all want to find a moment of peace and um, comfort while we're here together with one another in our village of Sunrise Families. And we all really want to find that love and compassion and mutual desire to heal our children and ourselves. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This morning, we have a super special guest with us, um, Mr. Carter Drew, who is a marriage and family therapy clinical fellow, and he has said, and I quote him on this, counseling is not my career, but my passion, a calling to be a bridge for clients who desire to grow into the best version of themselves. He works with people to help them uh, learn more, about the way they feel, and he provides relationship tools and strategies for families, individuals, and couples. Carter Drew is a clinician at the Brookwood Center for Psychotherapy. He is the father of three wonderful children, a grandfather, a husband, a Fortune 100 senior executive, former first responder, and executive coach. And he today is going to talk about what he calls the silver platter life. This is a candid conversation about how most of us, including myself, try to create this perfect world and perfect image. Um, I like to call it my best Facebook forward where we put out the pretty. We don't often put out the ugly. We never really put out the ugly because we have been trained that that's private and that should be back in the, in the uh, rafter somewhere. But we know that many of us are sharing our personal and professional achievements and highlighting are often what we call incredible children. Yet behind the scenes, many, of us are suffering in silence, Um, and we actually have several cracks in that silver platter um, that may look so beautiful and pretty to the outside world. So Carter, Drew, thank you so much for being here with us today. Super excited to hear um, you speak on this topic and really appreciate you for being here.
4: Well, Kelly, uh, uh, thank you so much for that uh, wonderful introduction and so uh, honored and privileged to be able to be here with all of you folks today. Uh, and talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. As as you spoke about, um, I've had a lot of different types of uh, experiences in my life across many different disciplines, and and those uh, experiences have given me a lot of uh, capability and insight into what I call human dynamics. And growing up as a kid on the south side of Chicago, I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, we were economically poor. Right? I've probably seen mo- more roaches and mice than most of you have probably seen cars in your lifetime, right? But my parents were values and convictions, principles, love, teaching and coaching, and faith rich. And they did everything that they could to get me off the South Side. And that's, that's the reason I've been able to experience some of the things that I'm going to talk about today.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's Just for Drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra.
4: And so I'll talk about uh, some different concepts. And one of them that I wanna start with relative to this whole silver platter lifestyle is this notion. I did some work, uh, psychotherapy work at a drug treatment center for about a year. And I would do this group on uh, Tuesday evening uh, at about 6.15. And I would lead with this quote. And you'd have about 30 people in there. Some of them were spouses, some of them were parents or siblings of, of folks who were in treatment. And what I said was, the greatest curse in life is that which is given on a silver platter. The greatest curse in life is that which is given on a silver platter. And what our children really need to understand, and what we need to understand, some of us as parents, is is money can't save us out here, right? In fact, access to a lot of money without strength of character uh, can become an accelerant just uh, to burn your life to the ground. Now I, I uh, work with a nonprofit and we worked with about 300 uh, black boys here in the city of Atlanta. Most of them live in the uh, three zip codes where 80% of the Georgia prison population comes from. They've got about a 4% chance of getting out of poverty uh, without intervention in their lifetime. And so one of the things that we talk about is this acronym called C S E A standards, expectations and accountability. And so, I'd like to talk a little bit about a couple of personal stories in terms of how my father imprinted that into my life. So let's start with standards. My father had a 1970 Buick Electra 225, better known as the deuce and a quarter, right? And my job uh, was to wash and wax the car and change the oil. And so I would go out there and, you know, hot summer day in Chicago and, you know, wash and wax the car and so the first couple of times he would come out and he said well roll all the windows down halfway car see this part that goes up in the door frame that's supposed to be clean he made me bring out back all of my tools and he touched all these details and i'm not you know here i am as a kid you know i want to go play ball i want to get up out of there right and um and finally i just got to a point i said you know i'm gonna do this car the way he wants it done so one day he came down And then you know, and I had touched all his hot spots, right? You couldn't find anything. And he rarely, if ever, did this. He went into his pocket and got some money. And he said, Son, I'm gonna give you this today because you did a great job, but I'm not paying you. This car is part of your responsibility to the family. You live here, you eat here, but I'm gonna give you this because. I know as my son, if you get to the corner store and can't buy your girlfriend an ice cream cone or a soda, that would be a real problem for you. And he he knew his son because no one was more upset about the fact that I didn't have any money, right? And so, but I wanna take that a little bit further. So I had a friend whose dad was the chief mechanic at the Palmer Cab Company at 4800 Cottage Grove in Chicago. And so we started going down to the cab company and washing and waxing cars. And the cab company is kind of like a barbershop, you know, guys coming in, dropping off the cab, talking, hey, let's just get on this car. And we would wash and wax cars from seven o'clock in the morning till past dark. And uh, using this wax called Simonize, right? And so at the end of the car wash, we'd say, you know, watch this, sir, we take the cheese and throw it on the hood of the car, and the cheese would kind of glide off onto the floor and go and give us a, another tip. So for a teenage kid, when we walking out of there with 50 or $70 in my pocket, that was a lot of money back then. But my father made me reach a standard when I didn't feel like it that allowed me to turn that standard into production, right? And so a lot of times, young men out here today and, and young women, they don't have a standard that they can turn into production. So let's talk a little bit about expectations. Now, my first car I bought from my dad. Now understand what I said. He didn't give me my first car. I bought my car from my dad. And we're standing in front of the house on the day I bought it. And he said, car, let me tell you something about this car. Everything about this car is your responsibility. Doesn't have any gas in it, not running, your problem. You don't pay the insurance, you can't drive it, your problem. Anything that breaks on this car, it's your problem. And so I understood what he's talking about. And so one day in the dead of winter, uh, my water pump went out. I went to a great high school in Chicago, Chicago Vocational. Where we had auto shop and drafting, machine shop and electronics, electrician. And I love cars. I'm growing up in the muscle car era. So me and my buddy went to Illinois Auto Parts. And we got a rebuilt water pump. I shoveled all the ice and snow out from underneath my Pontiac and put a cardboard box under there. Got under there with my tools, took off all the belts, pulled out my radiator, antifreeze running running down the uh, uh, the street, resealed the water pump, put the new one back on, replaced everything, and fixed my car. My dad didn't come out of that house one time. Now, how do you think I felt when I got from underneath that car? I can repair my own car. Nothing can stop me now, right? Now, what if my mom had come out there and said, oh, your car is broken, Carter. We're going to call AAA or we're going to get the tow truck and we're going to send it to Firestone and they're going to fix it. I would have just totally missed my moment. And that's some of the stuff that can happen in a silver platter type of lifestyle, right? Making stuff easier, right? Let's talk about accountability. This is the last of these three things. So I lived in an area with about we called it Hooterville, out on 90, close to 95th in Cottage Grove. 14, 15 boys in the area, we competed in, in everything. And uh, so we're at this small ball field near the house and we're playing with that 16 inch clincher softball. And I hit that ball all the way to the right field wall and it went through a window, bang, you know. So what do kids do when they break a window? Well, you know, <laughs> south side, we run. <laughs> You know, so everybody ran and we we went off playing somewhere else, and um, and so later on, I went home, and and uh, my dad, you know, we had a very principled relationship, and so I walked up there and I said, "Hey, how you doing, Dad?" He said, "I'm doing good, Carter." He said, uh, "Anything happened out there today?" Now, when my dad asked me that question, I knew he already knew the answer, and one of his principles was was. Carter, no lying or deception. I have to know that what you're telling me is the truth. I know that you're gonna have problems, you're gonna have issues, you're gonna make mistakes, but don't ever lie to me about it. If you lie to me about it, your consequences will be 10 times greater than if you tell the truth. And I already knew how bad some of my consequences were. So 10 times greater, I didn't wanna deal with that, right? So I said, dad, I broke a window out there. He said, I know it, go get your bank. So I had this jar on my, uh, on my uh, dresser I was collecting coins, quarters and nickels and stuff. And uh, so I got my bank and we went to this guy's house where the window was broken. He said, I want you to apologize to Mr. Sawyer for breaking this window. I don't even think the guy knew that the window had been broken. But we went up there where the window was and my dad had me to pull out all the glass and sweep everything up. Now my dad was a custodian for head custodian for 40 years at Crane Tech High School. He took me to the hardware store and with my money, bought the glass, showed me how to cut it and put that window back in that guy's house, right? So the whole thing was, it's kind of like JFK said, you know, a man's error doesn't become a mistake until he fails to go back and correct it. So that that whole structure of accountability uh, was very important uh, in my life from that standpoint. All right, so now let's talk a little bit about why are some teens struggling today? Well, some of them are struggling and they don't have a high level of self-esteem because they don't know how to do anything, right? And 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 it's confidence comes from a demonstrated ability to do something. Them doing it, not them watching you do it, right? And so so that whole process of of engaging them and not doing for your children what they can do for themselves, right? And so a lot of kids in this silver platter environment, they got somebody to make their bed. Their mother cleans up their room. They got somebody, their mother's doing their laundry. They're not cutting any grass. They're not washing any cars. They're not raking any leaves, right? So this this operating system is just kind of floating through the family and seeing the family as a well of generosity that I can drink from, but I don't have to put anything in. And so that translates to problems further down the road. So I wanna get into this whole aspect of uh, family systems, right? And so one of the things in in my process, I look at family systems as a whole. And many of you have probably heard this, but in that family system, there's four subsystems and one that I added. So there's the marital subsystem, the parental subsystem, the sibling subsystem, the extended family subsystem, and the foundational role that I believe that the man should play in the family, right? And I'll talk more about men uh, a little bit more later on. So this system is like a mobile. Any input, positive or negative, to any aspect of that system infects the entire system. So the parents are getting divorced, it affects the entire system, right? If one of the siblings is involved in some kind of addiction, it affects the entire system. If you've got relatives coming over and smoking dope in front of your kids, it can affect the entire system. If the, if the father, uh, because of issues with the mother, decides he's gonna detach from the children because their relationship is fractured, it affects the entire system, okay? So it's important for parents to realize that the children are the symptom bearers of the, some of this dysfunction that's going on in the family system that they're leading, right? The children are the symptom bearers because what we hear a lot is I'm gonna put Jimmy in counseling, fix Jimmy, right? And so, you know, while I was working in this drug treatment center, I would hear uh, this a lot. And there were a lot of high net worth people who had their young adults in treatment. And to stay at this location to get drug treatment for three or four months, it could cost you sixty dollars to $80,000, right? So they were definitely into this whole silver platter lifestyle thing, right? And what I would hear is, is that, oh, the father's a CEO, and he's too busy, and he can't come in for family week or whatever the case may be. And I said, oh, really? OK, get him on the phone. And I talked to him and say, "Um, you love your son? He said, yeah, Carter. Yeah, that's that's why I got him in treatment. I said, okay. I said, well, I just wanna let you understand is that this family system piece, we can get a short-term behavioral modification with Jimmy while he's in treatment. But when we put him back in the family system that you're leading, if there's no change, it increases the likelihood that he's gonna relapse. So if you really love your son, I really would encourage you to come in and do the work that you need to do parallel to the work that he's doing so that you're increasing the level of emotional health in the family system so when he goes back in, it supports him in terms of the continual wellness that he should have, right? The bottom line is, is parents need to be prepared to be transformed by the transformation that they want to see in their children, transformed by, right? And so being in that place where you understand that as you're changing yourself, you're changing the relationship dynamics with your child. And so um, it's crucial to really understand that no person can exceed their level of personal development in any aspect of life. I don't care what it is, it could be your marriage, it could be your financial life, your career life, your parenting life. And it's really important that parents today are on the cutting edge of their parental skills to help their children to navigate through some of the complex social media issues that that are out there today that didn't even exist um, when you were growing up. So we hear this this thought process that, well, I love my child. Okay. So I'm going to give you one definition of love as I proceed through this process. So love is to disadvantage myself for the benefit of another. It's an action word. Love is to disadvantage myself for the benefit of another. So in the context of this silver platter world, right? We all live in stories and some parents find themselves in a story. I'm a CEO and I'm working 70 hours a week. I've got a lot of responsibility. I'm working with the board, all of that stuff. And believe me, I've been there. I know what it's like to be busy, right? But I want you to really consider this. If your private life and your public life are not in alignment, one can destroy the other. Yes, the stock price may be going up, sales may be going up, profits may be going up, but what good is that if Jimmy uh, is on, is getting on drugs, uh, if your teenage daughter is pregnant, if one of your kids is trying to commit suicide or whatever the case may be. And so it's really important that you really engage in that whole personal development work. And, and speaking particularly to men, I'd use this acronym called health. I won't go through the whole thing, but the H stands for humanizing the notion that seeking help and support is actually an act of courage and bravery rather than a sign of weakness. Because because of our socialization process as men, we're raised to don't ask for help, don't accept help, and for God's sake, don't offer any help to another man. right? And so that keeps us in an isolated position And most men over 40 don't have what I call genuine human contact. And what is genuine human contact? Where you have a professional relationship with a counselor, a therapist, a coach, your pastor, where you're completely downloading what your issues are and what you're up against and so that they can help you to edit the story and uh, you know, as I talked about, we all live in stories. We're the author of the story, the narrator of the story, and we're trying to edit our own story. And sometimes we need somebody else to help us to edit that, that story so that we can see it clearly and go where to where we want to go in the future. So I want to shift to this, this piece in terms of uh, buckle your seat belts, moms. Because sometimes I get in trouble when I say this, right? So, so brace yourself, right? The children are last. What? Yes. The children are last. Now, why would you say that? Okay, so I wanna talk about this whole thing in terms of attachment theory. When a child is born into the world, they're designed to securely attach to their first caregivers, to their parents, right? and. Because we're all born to imperfect parents, sometimes that doesn't happen. And so the limbic system of the base brain, right? It doesn't learn anger, resentment, hostility, or frustration or violence by reading about it in the book the cow can't read. The limbic system learns from immersion. So the reason I say the children are last And your marital relationship or your relationship with your ex, or if you're a single mom and you got pregnant by somebody, that relationship is first because that's the emotional container that your child is being raised in, right? And and so when that base brain is not being immersed in joy, in peace, in calm, in love, that doesn't get baked in. And so a lot of kids later on in life they're out there trying to use drugs to elixir their pain and trying to find the joy outside of themselves because it was never really, they were never really immersed in that process early on. Okay, so I, th- I think that it's really important from, from, a, from a parental standpoint to really think about what is the emotional health of the relationship that you're in. And what can happen when the child cannot securely attach is they develop what's called a childhood survival adaptive routine. So I can't really attach to mom, you know, maybe my mom's too young or we don't have money or we got this. So I have to make an adjustment. Now that childhood survival adaptive routine can show up and manifest itself in a lot of different ways, but I'm going to give you three primaries in controlling tendencies, in pleasing or complying tendencies, or in protecting tendencies. Now, that childhood survival adaptive routine, it works. Six years old, nine years old, 14 years old. But now when you're 25, when you're 30, when you're 40, and when you're 50, it can create a suboptimal solution in in your life, still using those types of tendencies. And understand this, we don't blame the parents. We got to exonerate them because all they can do is what they can do from from that standpoint but all of us can make a decision whether we want to stay our old program or do we want to be the programmer of the parent and the person that we need to be in the future and so when you're talking about those three tendencies i want to speak to you in terms of how they manifest themselves in varying three different parental styles and, and and think about these styles and again don't judge yourself it's just gathering insight from that perspective so are you a, a more authoritarian type of parent? This is a parent that has a lot of those controlling tendencies, imposes a lot of limits with strict obedience, but really is not teaching and coaching. They're not really explaining anything. And my dad used to say, Carter, be a leader, not a follower. Well, how can I be a leader when I'm not allowed to think of for myself and then work myself way out of my own challenges and so what can happen in this silver platter type of scenario is what i call the helicoptering parent this parent is constantly helicoptering and hovering over and do this right and put your right foot in front of your left foot and so that becomes uh, particularly problematic let's go to this next parent this is the permissive parent
2: I just think so can i just ask a question on that because the authoritarian uh, of most, I think probably a lot of us comes from a space of fear, especially as we have these, you know, big, tall, you know, black men there going out into the world, and you may not understand, you know, what we know to be true, right, given our experience being black in America. So I'm just saying, do you see that? I guess my question is, do you see most black women in that space of authoritarian? I I know I have have been historically, which is why we ended up in some of the challenges we we did. Um, so I'm working on myself you know, to, to, to shift significantly from that space, but it's really a question. Do you see the vast majority of us in that type of, of parent?
4: Well, one of the things that I'm gonna talk about in a few moments, uh, Kelly, is the parental coalition. Okay. And you're speaking right into the space that I talked to because In the 1960s, when the Kerner Commission report came out and when the Moynihan Commission report came out, almost 80% of Black children were raised in two-parent homes. After this war on drugs, and I don't want to go down the ramifications of mass incarceration, now we have almost 75% of Black children being raised in single-parent homes. And so many uh, Black women have been forced into a leadership void. right? into a place that they were really not intended to be in terms of being the primary source of manhood development for their sons. And so part of the implications of that is early, um, for lack of a better term, pressurization process that should be happening in a father and son relationship where the father is the master craftsman and the son is the apprentice, it's not happening because most mothers would not have a frame of reference how to even do that. Uh, if you talk about that, you know, the example that I gave when my dad took me over there to fix my window, fix that window. Now I had an incredible mother. My mother was the picture of love, did unbelievable stuff in my life. But would she have thought to do that? Not her job to do that. So, So I wanna, you know, Talk a little bit more about the parental coalition, and come back to your question to see if if that provides some, some greater insight around that. Okay. Thanks. Okay. So so in terms of that permissive parent, the pleasing and, and warm and communicative, but really not setting any boundaries, right? And um, you know, my dad told me one day when I was a little boy, he said, uh, "Carter, when I call you, uh, you need to say yes, Dad, or yes, sir." And I said okay dad well okay well why do I need to do that he said because I'm your father I'm not your friend and you can't talk to me like you talk to people in the street right and so um if you have a teenage child and you're more like in a mother scenario like like their girlfriend or in a father scenario more like their buddy right this can create what we call the snow plowing parent the snow plowing parent is the person who uh, mitigates the consequences, softens the blow, tries to move all the problems out of the way, right? But your strength of character comes from you going through and not around, right? That's where your strength comes from. Very few people can say that good times changed my life. Usually it's the adversity that you're going through and navigating that changed your life. So the last type of parent, let's talk about, about this. The authoritative, not authoritative. Authoritarian, authoritative parent. Sets limits, but's flexible, right? Goes beyond acceptance of limits and, and, and really hones in on what, accept, what behaviors are unacceptable. Uh, teaches the child to regulate their feelings and finds appropriate and healthy ways of problem solving. Has emotional honesty well, with their child teaches them to express their anger, but not in destructive ways. And um, and I think that one of the things that I had to learn as a dad, is when you're a senior VP or whatever the case may be, you're casting a huge shadow on your children. They're trying to think, well, how am I going to ever do this stuff? So being able to be emotionally vulnerable and get down into their level, enter their psychological world and having empathy in a way that you can step into their shoes, right? You know, I see some parents out there using profanity and cursing at their kids and these kind of things. All of these things are really, you know, very detrimental from that standpoint. Do you have the capability to give clear and consistent messages about what behavior is appropriate and what behavior isn't? And children who know the rules and understand the consequences, they are a lot more likely to behave regardless. They, you know, children wanna see their parents as, as, as allies. But I want to say this, this, and this is really important, is you know, my mother taught me to speak in metaphors, right? You gotta get the ingredients in the cake while it's in the mixing bowl. A lot of parents, the cake's coming out the oven. Now you're trying to put the icing on the cake. (laughs) Now you got a lot of problems because you got to get those convictions, values, and principles in early. It's not to say that it can't happen later, but it will create a lot more difficulty for you in, in that time.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
2: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price
1: and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
4: And so I want to talk a little bit more about, from a parental standpoint, the importance of emotional intelligence. And being able to expand your range of emotional intelligence in a way that you can get the best out of each unique child that you have because all your children are different. Now, children learn by observation and example and instruction. And they learn more by observation and example, whether they get an instruction or not, right? And so this is why this parental coalition is so important and that the mother and father have unity and alignment around the principles, the values, the convictions, and the behaviors, and how they're gonna impute those into the child because that forms the child's foundation and operating system for life. In the absence of having those things coming from a larger base than yourself, a lot of kids just get whipsawed by emotions and their sexual feelings or whatever the case may be. So that foundation governs your decisions, your actions, and your behaviors from a long-term. So let me, let me just give you another example of this. And so what that strong foundation does, it allows you to have what I call a made-up mind. So I'm standing in an alley near my house. I grew up in the muscle carrier. There's a guy from my neighborhood and one of my buddies sitting in a 1970 Challenger purple over white convertible, 446 pack. This is a bad car. We're all gathered around this car and he says, Andrew called me, oh, let's, let's take a ride. I'm not getting in that car. I know that car is stolen. Now, if I get in that car and get arrested, I got my father, my grandfather, I got three Chicago cops as uncles. Who am I gonna call to get me to come come pick me up at 1121 South State Street because I got arrested in a stolen car. I'm gonna gonna die that day, right? (laughs) So, but the whole point of it was, I already had a made up mind about this. I told one of my nephews, I talked to him about this covering process for his daughter. If your teenage daughter is trying to make up her mind and her panties around her ankles, it's already over with, right? So that's how important at the establishment of, of that foundation is from that, from, from that perspective. And I think maybe you mentioned this, Kelly. So I do a lot of work in terms of Gottman therapy and the sound relationship house. And one of the things that Gottman really talks about is this emotional intelligence of the parents and being able to emotionally coach the kids. And he talks about it from the standpoint of, recognizing that seeing certain emotions is an opportunity to connect with a deeper level with your children, and it's also a teaching moment. It's an area for empathy where you can step into their shoes. Uh, If any of you out there have another device and you want to Google this thing called the feeling wheel, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the feeling wheel shows these various feelings at the center, but it also shows where what are the underlying uh, areas of those feelings so you can help your children really understand what the underlying issues of their sadness or their fear uh, may be. Uh, helping children to set healthy limits and problem solve versus snow plowing and helicoptering. So it's really crucial that the parents have unity in the parental coalition so that they can sit on both sides, on the same side of the table and communicate the same message to the children, even though, though they may have various uh, levels of diff- disagreements themselves. You know, my parents really tried to teach me and coach me a lot. And so one of the aspects that I speak to is home training Right, is somewhat of a lost art today. Um, so I've asked parents to think about a shift rather than thinking about what should I do that when things go wrong? Think about how do I need to help things go right? How do I need to help things go right? And parents that spend more time teaching and coaching, right, obviously spend less time correcting. Now, the final thing that I'm going to get into is uh, somewhat of a sensitive subject as well. What is the quality of relationship uh, between you and your child? Uh, because at a certain age, right? Rules don't work without relationship. And leadership like parenting is not a title, uh, parenting like leadership is not a title or position, it's a way of being. So when you think about the parental coalition, what is your fundamental level of regard for the other person that's in that coalition with you? Is there a level of love for that other person? Is there a level of respect for that person? Is there a level of admiration or appreciation? Or do you only see that other person through the lens of what they're providing for you, for what you need from them? So it's difficult to have a great relationship with your child if the two parents don't have the uh, the ability to put some of their feelings aside momentarily and regulate the emotional temperature of the parental relationship to a healthy level so that they can co-parent the children. Without that, uh, the parental coalition is fractured and that will really damage uh, the foundation and structure of your child's development from that standpoint. So let's look back at that love thing. So real love in action uh, looks like the things that I talked about. The opposite of that that is what I see in a lot of divorce and separation scenarios is the children are used as buffers, pawns, and confidants. But you have to realize the children are part of both parents. So when the children are with you and you're disparaging the other parent, it's really doing a lot of emotional harm um, that can be passed on intergenerationally from that standpoint. So I see a lot of codependent relationships uh, that parents have with their adult children. And if you know anything about codependency, it's like a cast, like a cast on your arm. It feels good, everybody feels protected, but I want you to just keep in mind this. You're not in a healthy relationship unless both people take 100% responsibility. When one person is taking more than 100% and another person is consistently taking less, you're not, no longer in a relationship, you're in what's known as an entanglement. Two people restricting each other's movements. And sooner or later, that cast that you have on your child uh, from a codependent standpoint is going to have to come off. And it's going to be a lot more painful now to try to build those muscles at 30 and 40. You know, I, I had worked with men in treatment in their 50s that are still were not fully emancipated. Okay, so I think that we're pretty close to the end here. I would only just give you uh, something from Stephen Covey, the six most important decisions, right? Uh, That you need to help your child navigate. Who are my friends? How am I gonna deal with dating and sex? What's my relationship with my parents and my relational bank bank account with them? Uh, Navigating uh, around uh, uh, addictions and drugs, my self-confidence and my self-esteem. And I know all of you parents out there are doing the best you can. Give your kids everything that you can from a healthy standpoint. And also always remember that your signature is on their soul. Thank you.
2: Wow. Your signature is on their soul. I, I, everything you said um, resonated with me and what's happening in my life. And, but I don't wanna take over um, the conversation. I'm sure that people wanna ask questions or share. So if anybody would like to say anything or share or ask a question of Mr. Drew. Hey Carter, I just want to jump in just to to go back to Kelly's
3: original question because I do think, and and, and, because some of these folks are not necessarily single, but I do think that some of us operate from a standpoint of being afraid of what will happen. And so we do try and over control the situation. And then I also think sometimes we're afraid of what the relationship will become if we act the way that we know we need to act
2: as the parent. Just to build on that, there's um, a person in the chat wrote, this puts the mom in a precarious position, knowing the statistics of having black boys raised in single family homes and the flip side of raising black boys in an environment where they don't see love or can't fully attach," as you mentioned.
4: Well, there's several dynamics at play here. Mm number one is is that it's really really challenging for a young man and not to say that there aren't exceptions and ways of overcoming this if if your father is either not in your life is absent or is not truly engaged in your development that's going to be really really challenging for you because what i see with a lot of of black young men is um, they're not pressurized and what i mean is is that in that pressurization process of coming up as a little boy, right? You learn how to handle adver- adversity. Let me give you an example of it. I'm writing a book about these stories with, with my dad, right? So one day, uh, you know, in the same neighborhood, I, you know, playing ball in the alley, I got in, you know, injured or whatever the case may be and uh, came home and I was sitting down on the on the bottom steps and uh, my dad came to the top of the stairs. He said, what happened, Carter? I said, well, you know, dad, they hurt me out there. I guess he could see my situation. He said, well, he said, I'm gonna go in here to sit down and um, I'm gonna come back to the top of these stairs in 10 minutes. When I come back, I don't wanna see you there. Just going out there and keep playing. Now, some people might look at that and say, well, you know, that was just terrible. Or, you know, How could you do that? But his whole point was this. If you're a young black man and the only way you can get things done is when stuff is going your way and when you're being treated fairly and when you're not presented with adversity, it ain't gonna happen for you out here. And so as a young man, you really have to learn how to, to an extent, fuel up on challenge and adversity. Last year, I've worked with two or three young black like, men that quit their corporate jobs. Why did you quit? I'm, I'm tired of being treated unfairly, uh, you know, tired of playing the game, being passed over. That is the game. <laughs> if you don't know what the game is, you are the game. And so, so, so part of it is is that if you don't have uh, a ment- you know the male mentoring relationship or whatever the case may be, uh, trying to trying to find that. But my whole point of it is is that the protecting process can give your son a false read on whether he's fully emancipated or not, and the distinction between being an adult versus a grown up. An adult is somebody that's 21 years of age. A grown-up is someone who can manage the ripple effect of all their decisions, choices, and actions 100% on their own. And so, finding that right balance, and this is why maybe uh, you know family therapy or whatever the case may be. And, I, and, and sometimes what I do is, you know, uh, what's the situation with with, with, with the child's father? Cause I talked to a lot of fathers. Well, you know, I love my son. Okay. So how does that love look in action in this situation? So I don't want to take up too much time, but tell me if I'm, are you reading what I'm saying or is that helpful or is it not helpful?
2: Super helpful. I think for uh, me, for sure. I was like, wow, I have an adult. I'm an 18 year old adult, absolutely not a grown-up, and not nearly there, but that's for another conversation. We only have about 10 minutes left. So I wanted to see if anybody else has a, comment or a question. Did you want to say something?
4: So I did this with with all three of my children Mm -hmm. years ago. And I said, okay, so what percentage of of this definition of a grown-up are you living right now? Give me your percentage. Mm. 70%. Okay. Now I want you to tell me what date is it that you're going to close this gap?
2: Oh, I love it. Uh Uh-huh.
4: Tell me what date is because you want all these quote unquote grown-up privileges, the benefits of the car and go wherever you want and eat what
5: mm-hmm.
4: Let me tell you this last story and that maybe lend itself to this. So my son, you know, I went through a whole process of being separated, you know, with my wife and all this stuff. And I was having a conversation with her, and she said, well. Your son's having a dinner party. I said, really? Now, we had these principles, right? Within 48 hours of you coming home from your college break, you better be on a job. If you're not on the job, you're going to have that hot fry scoop in your hand, saying four large at McDonald's. Now, you had your whole semester to figure out where you're going to work it. As long as it's legal, I'm good with it. But not working during spring break, we're not on that program. So I said to her, um, who's paying for it? Because she talked about the Dominion. I said, well, who's paying for it? And, and, and it was quiet. I said, I'll be right over. And so I, I got my son. We went down to the basement. I said, here, you have a dinner party. He said, oh, yeah, Dad. I said, who's paying for it? Well, I thought I would borrow the money from Mom. I said, let me tell you something. Here's something that you need to know. Mm. Scale the size of your dinner party to the size of your wallet. If that's at McDonald's or if that's at Morton's, <laughs> take your pick. We had a very difficult conversation, tears flowing the whole nine yards. Fast forward two or three weeks, my son calls me from the University of Illinois. He said, Dad, that was one of my, our most difficult conversations, he said, but I needed that. I came back to school and I got a job,
2: mm-hmm.
4: right? And I sent you hundred dollars for that thing you did for me six months ago. Now, it wasn't my wife's job to do that. That was my job to do that. So does that shed any light on the process? Yeah.
2: Yes.
5: Um, hi, I'm, I'm listening to you and it's, it's really hitting home. Um, I do not get along with my kid's father, my ex-husband, um, but they're definitely, luckily for me, I do have two incredible brothers. And it isn't until, you know, I basically was like, hey, I need some help in this area, boy, did they have an earful for me, right? They were very much like, stop it then, stop, baby, let him go. You know, you need to, if he's out on the street for a little bit, it's a choice that he's going to make. And, you know, as much as I worry about his mental health, um, when he was forced to go stay, at um, a loan in an apartment and he had to, and I'm like, I'm not giving you any money and your daddy doesn't have any money. So <laughs> you need to make it work. Well, he got two jobs and getting those two jobs. um, And he's college degree, it's not in his field, but as he's working through his mental health challenges, getting those two jobs, knowing that he has to be a grown up and mean not, I only see him now about every other week has been good for my mental health, but it's also been good for his mental health. And I just did not see to the degree that I was enabling and having this stuff continue until I I pulled it. And it's actually been helpful for our relationship because then when we see each other, it's very planned. I'm not telling him what to do, Um, you know, we go in Dutch sometimes. Sometimes I was at first paying for things, but I switched it like, no, let's go Dutch sometimes. And it's incredible for me to be able to see that I prolonged the challenges by, um, by stepping in too much. And so I still am helping out with the mental health piece and helping him with the therapist and that kind of stuff. Cause that's a little pricey, but when it comes to his living expenses and everything he's, he's made, he's making it work. And to your point, you know, he doesn't want to do, you made a point about the gentleman um, who quit their corporate job. And it's interesting because um, my son, like many others is very intelligent and his whole point is he's, Figuring out what he's going to do but he doesn't want it the traditional way and of course I'm like I spent all that money on tuition are you kidding me but (laughs) to be quite frank with you like you're you're a black man with a good with a great degree get out there but his whole point is you know the young people are seeing things differently they don't want all the confines he's not impressed with me, you know, being the man, you know, and, and the, the implications that that has had on my own. And so he's working it out. And I think that that really does have a lot to do with some of the things that you were pointing out. Had I known what I, you know, my brothers on the meantime were literally just waiting there to let me step back and let them help him be a better man. And so I just, I wanted to say you make very good points. I wish I had heard you a few years ago.
4: Well, I appreciate that and uh, it makes me think about another transition point uh, for my two sons. Years ago, I met with them and I said, uh, "You know, sometimes I get in trouble for saying this. I said, uh, your relationship with your mom changed forever today. What are you talking about, Dad? I said, uh, do not go to your mother with your manhood problems anymore. You got me, you got these uncles, you got these cousins, and we're going to walk you through this wall of fire to where you need to be. And then I said, with mom, don't even get into it. I said, because their tendency to over-nurture, protect them, soften the blow, mitigate the consequences is that's not going to work for them. They need to understand the what the full weight of their life is. See, when you have the full weight of your own life, you have to sit in your own reality as a young man. That's the level of dissatisfaction that's the fuel for the transformation. When I'm living in a big, great bedroom and I can order anything I want and get it at the door and, you know, I don't have to, I got new Nikes and uh, Xbox and all this other stuff and I'm doing a, you know, a halfway job at school or whatever the case may be, I'm not dissatisfied. What am I dissatisfied about? This is great. I can stay here until I'm 45 years old. And so, creating that level of dissatisfaction with the status quo. You know, uh, one of my first jobs, I did janitorial work at Lawson Elementary School, right? I was 17 years old, I had a man's job, I'm cleaning stuff off the walls and urinals or whatever the case may be. And I did that for two summers in a row. But you know what? The dissatisfaction is saying, you know, oh, oh, no, I'm not doing this. I need to get an education. And so a lot of times we don't realize that creating that level of uncomfort is the transformational fuel that our sons need.
2: Ooh. We could go on for another few hours because everything you're you're dropping so many pearls of wisdom here and. Uh... That right there, I think many of us are probably guilty of, you know, just like you said, giving too much. We have these privileged children that really don't learn, you know, how to work it out, how to do those things that we did, that we were taught as children. So anyway, um, I just want to say thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've come to the end. Yes, sir.
4: One time an adult, two times a child. Hmm. So if all these parents, if you live to be old enough, you will enter your second childhood. And these children you're talking about, they're gonna be your parents. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, all of what you put in them, now is gonna to come to bear. So that's mm-hmm. how strong the development process that, that they're gonna need, because they're gonna probably be in a sandwich generation when you get older, they're gonna have their own teenage kids and they're gonna need a lot of strength to be able to support you Mm -hmm. in your life and to carry on your legacy.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So great fuel for thought and uh, for hopefully for transformation as we work on ourselves, which I think, as you said at the beginning, is most important working on our own family structure and our own situation. So thank you again for being here today. This has been incredible. Kelly Chapman is going to close us out with a prayer. Really appreciate you for being here.
4: Thank you for the honor and privilege of uh, connecting with you bringing folks. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you.
3: Carter, you're amazing. I, I'm just thinking about once a parent, twice a child, and I'm just like, oh, good God. <laughs> so thank you for that. You're I'm gonna welcome. start with the scripture, Luke 6, 20, six verses 20 through 22. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Lord, we come to you with gratefulness and thanksgiving. We thank you for Carter Drew. You said in your word, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. Mr. Drew has had the privilege of a life filled with standards, expectation, and accountability. As such, he instilled those same principles and values in his children, and he stands as a parent of three wonderful grown children. You said children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of their children. And Mr. Drew is a living example of growing up with structure and discipline, despite daily challenges, trials and tribulations. And as he planted those same seeds within his children, the fruit is evident they grew and they are flourishing. God, we thank you for this community and this safe space to be vulnerable and honest with ourselves and one another. That as you say, we can bear one another's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Today, God, we acknowledge that we may need to fine tune our approach with our children. The pride of the silver platter lifestyle goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Many of us have access to a wealth of financial resources, yet the financial wealth has not cured our challenges with our children. As we listen to solid examples of home training, we are grateful for the conviction in our spirit. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. God, help us to be the programmer of our family and to become pliable to new parental styles. Help us not to be the authoritarian or the permissive parent. Help us to be the parent with a broad range of emotional intelligence as we parent our children. Regardless of what happened yesterday, we are grateful that we can start anew today. Today, each one of us can take 100% responsibility for our parenting style and how we speak, love, and how we set boundaries with our children. And we are grateful, God, that as a loving God, you gave us a free will. And with our choices, you've allowed us to experience the results. Whether you allowed us to thrive or go into a valley, you were faithful to honor our choices with accountability. So, God, we thank you for that today. And we are thankful that we can forget about how we did it previously and commit to changing. You said brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. We ask all these things in your son's name, amen.
4: Amen. Amen,
2: Amen, Kelly, once again, thank you, that was beautiful. I appreciate you and all of you for being here with us today. Uh, Have a beautiful Sunday. Mr. Drew, thank you again for being with us. Have a beautiful day, everyone. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Kelly Richardson Lawson, and you've been listening to the Sunrise Project podcast. You can follow Sunrise wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, open your podcast app and follow this show. Join us next week for another gathering of support. Thank you for listening. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental wellness challenges, contact your doctor, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or both. You can reach NAMI's helpline at 800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, or email at info Volunteers are working to answer questions, offer support, and provide practical next steps.